1: To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Revival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. And Katie, I just got back from the eye doctor. Have, you
0: got back from the eye doctor?
1: I have great supervision.
0: <laughs> oh, God. I don't know that we should start, like, random episodes with weird dad jokes. <laughs> You think you're funnier than you are, Kurt, and I'm sure probably your supervisees agree Mm -hmm. that you're not quite as funny as you think you are. Today, we're going to talk about supervision, not just uh, from the eye doctor, but actually overseeing other clinicians. And actually both Kurt and I have done a lot of this and Kurt is somewhat of a specialist on being a supervisor in private practice. So I'm excited about this conversation. I think we'll probably agree on more than we disagree, but hopefully it'll be-
1: The goal isn't for us to disagree on everything.
0: (laughs) Well, we want to make sure we're, we're putting all the viewpoints forward. I think that's important.
1: So, I am a CAMFT certified supervisor, California Association of Marriage. Fancy. And yes. At least here in California, at the master's level of licensure, I know that with psychologists it differs quite a bit, but with LCSWs, MFTs, LBCs, what is required is six hours of supervision every two years, supervision CEUs, and two years of experience of being licensed. That's the bare minimum qualifications for most of the licenses here in California, and I'm going under the impression that that's fairly similar across a lot of the states. What drives a lot of people to supervision and taking on pre-licensees into their practices, into agencies, is either the idea of wanting to be a mentor or wanting to pass on to the next generation of clinicians' wisdom and experience. But when you really hold that with only two years post-licensure and six hours of CEUs. That you can
0: potentially even get online.
1: And probably even faster than six hours, depending on the course that you take.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: There's the potential for a lot of non-good supervisors out there.
0: Non-good. That's that's. that's, Are you trying to be politically correct? Because there's just some really bad supervision that I've heard about throughout the years. And I think probably there's also a lot of really good supervision that's happening. But I think the point that you're making is that Becoming a supervisor is something that really should have some some vetting, some in-depth, what am I trying to say here, experience and training, and there's opportunities for that. And I know in California, there's some, some efforts to make it a little bit more structured, but really the bare minimum with six hours of clinical supervision, continuing education, and two years post-licensure really doesn't necessarily cut the mustard. But you're certified as a CAMP-certified supervisor. What does that mean?
1: So rather than just a one-time six-hour course, what I did was 18 hours of CEUs on supervision and a year of being supervised on supervision by somebody who is already certified. I know that AAMFT also has a certified supervisor process. Theirs is a 30-hour course and two years of supervision on supervision. Both of those programs are very solid as far as the education that they provide in being able to really look at supervision in a structured way with intention. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of clinicians who kind of dip their toes into the supervision process, either as how they practice as clinicians. So they bring kind of this psychotherapy mindset to doing supervision And so what ends up happening is a lot of supervision sessions that sound like a case report given by a therapist in training, followed by some version of, here's what I would do.
0: Ah, yes.
1: So there's a number of different supervision models. There's actually theories of supervision that are available to be studied and are really beneficial in looking at things. I think one of the ones that was really popular for quite a while was kind of this developmental model Mm -hmm. of supervision that very early therapists are looking at the very structural, how do I ask this? Where do I place the Kleenex box? What do I say to this? It's a very natural thing, but I think that one of the limits of those developmental models is that once therapists reach a certain amount of experience... It's not that they stop developing, it's just that the developmental model doesn't provide a whole lot for supervisors to continue to mm-hmm. challenge them with.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting because I know I've heard of of other different types of models as well. I think that, you know, I've definitely heard of the developmental model. There's reflective supervision. I took a course on recovery-oriented supervision, trauma-informed supervision. There's a lot of different ways that we can provide supervision or that we can receive supervision. But when I've actually hired supervisors, when I've done interviews for supervisors and I said, what is your orientation around supervision or what's your supervision model? I don't know how many blank stares I got. It's <laughs> A lot of people don't realize how much is really out there to become a really highly qualified supervisor.
1: As with a lot of the trainings and stuff that we do in our field, I do recommend that you look at a number of different ones of these models. You don't have to be an expert right from the beginning. That Part of this process of supervision is owning where your limits are. And that's mm-hmm not only a part of the reflective version of supervision, but it's something that I've found really normalizes a lot of things for clinicians in training in order to grow themselves, in order to have that okay to not have to have the answers of everything. And it really does provide a lot of confidence. I'm partial to the seven-eyed supervision model. This was developed by Hawkins and Shohet, and it looks at the client's process. It looks at the therapist's process. It looks at the supervisor's process as all things that are affecting what is going on in the therapy room, as well as the context of the time and the place where somebody is experiencing their life. And so it brings in a number of different ideas that all influence what is happening in the supervision process. Now, That's I didn't what... start there. <laughs>
0: I was just going to say, I think that's a really interesting model because I actually hadn't heard of that one before. But looking at all the different things that can influence what's happening in the room is so important. You know, looking at what a therapist needs developmentally and saying, hey, you need more direction or you need less direction is a good place to start. But like you said, you don't necessarily start with really understanding the impacts of all these different, I guess, contexts and processes
1: Mm-hmm. Really, my process started way back when I was being trained mm-hmm. back in my trainee days. Some of the frustrations that I had in supervision where it was sitting around a table in group supervision and everybody had their 15 minutes to report on cases and the supervisor would nod and every so often a suggestion might be made. And I was just bored to tears in mm-hmm. supervision. Being playful and coy, I just started challenging other people in the group. As, <laughs>
0: you you know, challenge someone? Yeah. So
1: <laughs> I, I was very fortunate that I had some good people in supervision with me that kind of took on that challenge and we ended up pushing each other to become better therapists. When I moved to my second supervisor later on in my accruing of hours phase, it was within an agency where a lot of the support wasn't necessarily directed towards what was happening with clients or even teaching so much. It was just kind of reporting case stuff and then not getting a whole lot of feedback or a lot of guidance. And in some ways, in looking back on it now, I almost wonder if the supervisor felt competitive with me or didn't Mm. want me to develop into a competitor. And that's really one of the things that you have to tackle in becoming a supervisor, especially on the private practice end of things. Yeah. You're essentially training your competition.
0: That's an interesting way to look at it. I think there's a couple of different ways to go from what you're talking about. The first thing that comes to mind is this idea of supervisors seeing you as competition. And I think... There was, I don't remember who I was talking about, and it wasn't actually in the realm of clinical supervision. It might have even been, you know, kind of a manager in another industry completely. But this notion that we're, quote unquote, training our competition, if it's viewed that way, which it sounds like your second supervisor did, the mindset's bad because you're not you're not really nurturing the next generation you're not creating the positive environment that you want to create in the current situation this person who I was talking about he said that he purposely mentored and improved the people around him and enjoyed seeing them go out into the community because he created a network of collaborators who were trained by him, who had good feelings about him. And it was so much stronger for his business than trying to hoard his secrets and stunt the growth of the people who he was managing and supervising. And so it makes me sad, I think, because I've not been in private practice supervision from either side of the couch, so to speak. So I hadn't thought about that aspect of training your competition. I mean, I guess I have in a lot of ways, but I just find that really interesting.
1: Thryser is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryser links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryser manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf.
0: They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryser.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.
1: Part of when I look at taking on pre-licensed clinicians into my practice that I do go in with that mindset of, I want to train somebody who is going to embrace the principles that I can teach. And really, a lot of that just boils down to being the best you that you can be in the room. And our clinical populations might not always completely line up. But if it's somebody that I know that I can really encourage and mentor into really embracing who they are in the therapy room, that's something that I really look for in my hiring process. And so it's kind of having a good idea of a sense of self already, which is you know a phenomenal opportunity when i can hire people who already hold some of those principles the same as me but i do go in with the intention of i'm not just hiring an employee i'm hiring somebody that i want to have a very good and healthy relationship with continuing on forever Mm -hmm. and being very selective about who I hire in order to really have that as a long-term goal, that it's not just to get somebody to be licensed, but to really have those professional and even personal friendships once they do no longer work for me.
0: That's a really good mindset. I like that because I think too often when I've heard it, there's this notion about bringing on supervisees in a private practice that really what it comes down to there's there's two different mindsets there one is i want to nurture the next generation and the supervision maybe is very warm and loving and clinical and you know friendly and that kind of stuff and there's kind of not a lot of clients that are accumulated and we've talked about that before but this other mindset the one that i was kind of leading into was this idea that they see these supervisees as money making machines and In truth, that's harder than it sounds. You know, even if you have a waiting list, you still have to really nurture these folks to be able to help them do good clinical practice and and keep the clients coming and get the fees and that kind of stuff. But either one is really limited. You want to be able to develop the whole clinician that you're bringing on, and you need to look at them as a whole person and look at both pieces, kind of the business aspect of it as as well as the clinical aspect of it. And so, knowing you, Kurt, I know that you have a very good grasp on both of those things, and you're looking at is this somebody that I can hang out with? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And will they, you know, do they have a good sense of themselves and can they do the clinical work as well as can they make sure to continue to move the business forward, which I think is important. But shifting gears a little bit, my community mental health supervision was extremely different in some ways. There was definitely... I didn't feel the competition because they weren't training their competition, so to speak. I think there were people who, you know, when you, someone that can challenge people, you can seek a lot out, that kind of stuff. Sometimes people can still feel threatened by you or challenged by you. But generally, my supervision experiences were ones where I think that people move into clinical supervision in community mental health based on wanting to advancement or wanting to move out of a lot of, you know, the grind of a lot of clinical work. And so some people really were wanting to step into leadership. They wanted to mentor the next generation. So there was that too, but I think there were definitely some folks, some supervisors, and I had a lot of supervisors. I think before we we started recording, you and I were talking about how many supervisors we had and you had like two and I had like 15, mm-hmm. you know, so I think there's that piece of, I've had a lot of different experiences, but one of the reasons I had 15 was in community mental health. There was, there was turnover, over. There was moving me around to different programs and I had different supervisors and I had some really great supervisors, but I also had people that were kind of, I don't know what the right word is, maybe not totally burned out, although I think that was part of it, but just they'd kind of moved up because that was the next step. And they didn't necessarily have the thoughtful practice of how do I be the best clinical supervisor that I could be? How do I really nurture this person? It was like, how do I get them to perform?
1: One of the criticisms that I have of the community mental health side of supervision is that a big portion of supervision seems to be dedicated to what's your productivity? Are mm-hmm. your notes done correctly? You dotted this eye with a circle rather than a dot. Um, <laughs> that that does seem to take up a lot of the time that should be focused on clinician development. And this is probably more of a criticism of managed healthcare in general: is mm-hmm. that it becomes more of the paperwork end of things than it does about actually sitting back into what makes therapy work and that's about how you're working clinically and how you're working relationally.
0: I I see what you're saying. I think that's like saying that their private practice supervision is about marketing. I think that there's supervisors that do that on both ends because I think that there is business needs to have pre-licensed clinicians or people who are on their journey at some point. There's a need for them to be billing whether it's getting the fee from the client in private practice or billing to a government agency and a community mental health organization, that need is present and I think the supervision can take on that tone. And I've definitely talked to private practice clinicians where they said that their group supervision was totally devoted to how do we market. And so I think that that can happen at both ends. And certainly there was times in my providing supervision in community mental health where there was conversations that had to happen around productivity, scheduling, that kind of stuff. And that was about development of the individual in some ways and making sure that we could pay the bills in other ways. But I had some really great training and supervision in community mental health, and I think that I provided some nice you know, training and supervision in community mental health. And I think there's, there's a stereotype that I want to really push back against that supervision in community mental health is just about productivity and documentation, because I don't think it is. I think the folks who are really in it with the freedom of movement to, to provide that Yes, there is administrative supervision just like you're going to want to make sure that your your clinicians put their notes into your electronic health record and that they go to the networking things and that you're going to check on those things. But there are really there's really strong clinical work that's happening too and I don't want to downplay that just because there is such a structured way that community mental health supervisors are supposed to provide supervision around the administrative pieces.
1: I'm not going to argue with that because <laughs> I don't I don't have the experience myself of working in a community mental health situation as a supervisor. So mostly what I'm going on is off of those stories. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean to perpetuate them either. And I do think that you bring up a valid point that part of what happens is that when we look at the bare minimum amount of supervision that can happen in either setting, Mm -hmm. that we're just entirely looking at ratios. You saw 10 clients this week, so you only get one hour of supervision. When really, if part of that is being spent on either marketing or productivity related things that it really does do a disservice to the supervision process when not enough time is being dedicated to it that there's an opportunity to hear about cases to be aware of what's going on with your supervisees in a way that keeps you informed enough to be able to help with clinical decisions but still being able to go back to those business aspects so I'm more of a fan of the get as much supervision as you can Mm -hmm. and be willing to provide more than the minimum amount of supervision in order to strengthen the entire process for people.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think for me, I I miss providing supervision. I really enjoy it. But having gone to one of your trainings, Kurt, I realized that I need to really be in it all the way to set up the business properly as a private practitioner, as a clinical supervisor. But I think the best supervision that I've had and the best supervision that I've given has been really focused on nurturing and developing the clinician in the clinical aspects as well as kind of their professional development aspects and then balancing that out with kind of the necessary administrative pieces. I so agree with you on that because I think it can be really hard, you know, just like anybody can get so focused on managing the crisis of the day and only responding to emails and not taking care of themselves. I think supervisors can kind of, the the things that are on fire are, are we bringing money in or is a productivity there? And there can be a lack of thought And thoughtful process that goes into providing supervision and and doing the work. And so I like that you're really focusing on how do you really become the best supervisor where you're providing as much supervision as possible so that you can really nurture this young clinician or newer in the profession clinician who's really relying on you to help develop them as a whole person therapist.
1: You bring up the trainings that I do, and at least here in Southern California, the one that I'm most well known for is talking about the business end of supervision and what it Mm -hmm. means to be an employer in a smaller private practice type setting. And it's kind of scary. It's a big investment for people who are not ready to take on more paperwork, more Mm -hmm. supervisory things. And especially where we do have a dark spot in our profession of people taking advantage of pre-licensees that- for years the supervision practices have revolved around some sort of fee split that probably doesn't meet wage requirements mm-hmm. and we have a nasty habit in our profession of well this is this is what i had to do and so this yes. is what I'm willing to. This is what I'm willing mm-hmm. to pass on to people. Mm-hmm. And if I have to invest in bookkeeping and malpractice insurance or workers' compensation insurance for an employee, then I don't want to do this. Yeah. And so there is a number of steps, and I can include a link in the show notes to my events as they come up mm-hmm. uh, to my webpage. But but there are a lot of people who are turned off by the responsibilities of what it means to be a supervisor.
0: Yes, and I think it's it's something where. I'm pleased in some ways that people are thoughtful about it because there are some people who have not understood the responsibilities and have become supervisors. And like you said, not met wage requirements. They're having, at least in California, for pre-licensed folks, they have to be employees versus contractors. You know, fee split oftentimes is pretty complicated and and only if you really understand how to do it should you do it with pre-licensed folks because as employees, they have to make minimum wage. I mean, like, and this is all stuff I learned from you, Kurt, so thank you. But, but it's, something where I would rather people be hesitant to step in if they're going to not take the responsibilities, you know, rather than not take the responsibilities seriously and step in and do it wrong and doing it illegally.
1: And this is part of my goal of being a good role model for the next generation of clinicians. And I know that state laws are going to vary from place to place or even country to country. Mm -hmm. And part of my goals for this is not to just take advantage of pre-licensed clinicians to provide lower fee therapy, but to also instill the values in the next generation to really uphold the value of therapy to themselves, Mm -hmm. to the public. I definitely try to pay competitively for my clinicians, and we're not going to get into all the various details of fee splitting and how (laughs) things work out here, but... My clinicians can make thirty, forty dollars an hour over the course of a pay period. And mm-hmm. this is, you know, something that, it sometimes varies quite a bit, but I do really want to instill that at least on the private practice end, that this is not just a money-making machine. Mm -hmm. It's not just to provide services, but it's also about instilling the value of what therapy is to the community and within our therapy community.
0: Yes. And I think what some supervisors maybe feel really heavily, and maybe this is something that holds them back or people don't think about and, and don't put enough intention on, is that the supervisors most frequently, even maybe sometimes more than the schools, are really shaping how therapy continues to evolve. Because supervisors are the ones who are overseeing the clinical work, who are focusing the attention of the newer clinicians on how they can operate, how they assess, how they do case formulations. But it's something where the supervisors have a huge impact on how therapy continues to move forward. And if it's something where you're doing the bare minimum or you're seeing it as a money-making opportunity solely, I think there can be a positive way to increase your own income and support the nurturing of the next generation. But I think if supervisors don't recognize that they have a huge impact on how the profession moves forward, that can be problematic.
1: Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered.
0: Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free.
1: One of the things that I want to add to this, too, is that being a supervisor is oftentimes wearing multiple hats within the same session. We've we've talked about the business end, we've talked about the responsibly clinically end, and there is that collegial mentor friend. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. that can shift between viewpoints in the same moment in supervision. I think that that's something that you going into the supervision process need to be aware of, that you're providing an opportunity for somebody to ask you questions of how you handle things either directly, but it might be things around counter transference. It might Mm -hmm. be things around your experience with a particular type of client presenting with a diagnosis, or it might be even career advice of going forward. Mm -hmm. So there's a vulnerability that you need to be able to demonstrate in that supervision process, too, that is much more open and transparent than it would be in a traditional therapy setting.
0: I think it's important that you distinguished uh, therapy and supervision, because I think oftentimes what I thought you were going to say earlier in the episode was, you know, kind of the clinical supervisors doing it as a therapy, whatever, I've seen a lot of supervisors step across the line and and do some therapy with their supervisees. And I think that's also something where it's really important that we get real clarity on the roles. Because I agree, there's the development of the clinical and there's the administrative or business aspects. There's the mentorship, professional development side. But I think there's also a consumer protection function as well. And I think it's important that supervisors really understand that there's no piece of doing therapy even when you're talking about countertransference you're really if it gets deeper you really have to refer to therapy because i think if you go too deep into it the relationship shifts and you want to make sure that the relationship remains professional where you can be vulnerable with your supervisee and you can make sure that you're doing high quality work and not opening wounds with a supervisee who's going to go out and start working with clients
1: there's definitely a line there it's not as black and white as We would hope that it could be, but hey, this is is therapy. This is psychotherapy. This is, it all depends.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And (laughs) part of what happens in supervision is being able to recognize that that line's there, Mm -hmm. make it open that you're about to approach that line, give the permission to back away from that line if anything feels too scary. But there's a number of times in supervision or even in my teaching settings where approaching that line means I want to teach you an intervention that I want you to do with your clients, but I want you to have that personal experience with it Mm -hmm. to really be able to examine yourself. And I want to do that in supervision. Mm -hmm. So that way, if you have questions about it, you might come up with something that you don't really want to share with me. Yeah. So there is a towing of that line that needs to happen in a lot of situations, but it's not therapy. It's doing something to teach, to reflect on it.
0: Yeah, and I think especially with some of the, maybe not newer models, but I think with some of the different types of supervision I've heard of, I know certainly DBT is a perfect example. They do their coaching calls on their team and all that kind of stuff includes doing DBT on each other. You know, I think there's, there's that piece of experiencing the intervention and being able to to have the space and the safety to go deeper, but I think really identifying the line where therapy is really the, the correct avenue because regardless of the setting, if you're a supervisor, that role, it it is a dual role if you're doing therapy, because I think there is that power differential, there is that evaluative property. And so you want to make sure that you're really doing it the way that you described, Kurt, that it's, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is how we're going to move forward. This is the importance of trying this out and let's create safety so that you're not so vulnerable with your supervisor
1: one of the things that I advocate for a lot of supervisees is that they need to be their best advocate in supervision. Yes. They need to be able to speak up to their supervisors. And this comes back to that vulnerability part that you have. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of students who are taught in their graduate programs, you're going to learn this in supervision. And there's a lot mm. of supervisors who are saying, you should have learned that in school. Mm-hmm. So Knowing what you want out of each supervision session sets the tone of being able to really get clear on what you want to accomplish. It makes supervision a lot more enjoyable, and it makes it to where you're not just sitting around waiting for some arbitrary number of minutes to pass in order for you to get a checkbox marked.
0: (laughs) I think there's the responsibility of the supervisee to ask for what they want in supervision. I think the supervisor also needs to set the structure especially for newer supervisees. You know, this is what supervision can look like. This is how we'll work together in supervision. I think it can be hard, especially for for really new clinicians to put forward what they need in supervision because there needs to be an orientation, of course, because if you're not oriented to what supervision can include, I've seen it a number of times become venting sessions. It can become strategy sessions. How do I do this job? It can be very much just reporting and putting out fires when there's a lot of crisis. So, I really still want to put the onus on the supervisors to set the tone and and orient their supervisees to what is possible in supervision and opening the conversation about what would be best to talk about right now, what's most useful for us to work on in this moment, and to really curate and navigate what training and education needs to be folded in because that's really the responsibility of the supervisor.
1: This extends even beyond kind of the mandatory pre-licensed supervision that Mm -hmm. once we're licensed, that doesn't mean the end of supervision. In fact, that's been where I've gotten some of my best clinical work done is, you know, whether you call it consultation or supervision, it's being able to go in with the intention of knowing what you're asking for and making that time valuable. I've spoken before about, I'm working towards EMDR certification right now, and that's 20 hours of consultation that I need on EMDR in my work with clients. And I've been very strategic about my supervision sessions because I want the most out of that time. I don't want to Mm -hmm. be sitting there on a group phone call, hearing people talk about things that I've done well in the past, that I want to be thinking All right, what can I learn from this process to really go into it with a hunger? So that way, it's making my time valuable. And Mm -hmm. during my individual supervision times, I've got an agenda of things that I want to Mm -hmm. accomplish in that session. My consultant is probably thrilled whenever I'm coming in with, like, (laughs) okay, I'm going to really rake this session over the coals, but I'm getting so much more out of it because I do have that intention.
0: Yes, I I think that's really important to clarify because. I know one of the things that I really like about community mental health is that throughout the course of being a clinician, you continue to get supervision, at least where I was working that, you know, licensed clinicians got supervision, pre-licensed clinicians got supervision. And it was something where, you know, kind of to go back to the developmental model, you know, there was, as you move forward, it became more and more your responsibility to identify what you need with the supervision or consultation process. And I think that's so important. And I think it's, it can be very empowering once somebody has a clear sense of what can be involved in supervision.
1: So I think to wrap this up, what I look at is if you're going into the supervision process, if you're meaning to be a supervisor, really do some soul searching on what your intentions with it are. That there's people who do, create environments where you can make money out of having employees who are pre-licensed. There's people who do it solely for the mentorship aspect. And there's people who do it as part of their pro bono work of giving back. None of them are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but it's understanding the responsibilities that go beyond just what you think that your intention might be and really making it a good feeling and of good faith that you're doing it responsibly.
0: Yes, I think it's so important to make sure that that as a community, those of us who determine that we want to be supervisors, that we do it well, it is so critical that we create positive, healthy working environments, that we make sure that we're providing positive supervision to the next generation because our field requires it. It's it needs it because otherwise it's going to to crash and burn. We're gonna have horrible therapists that don't know what they're doing, no business sense no clinical sense. It'll be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but but this is this is your big vision, right, Kurt? You want to make sure that people are doing supervision, especially in private practice, where there's, it's kind of the Wild West at this point. You want to make sure that supervisors in, in private practice are doing what they need to do so that they can continue to do it and pre-licensed folks are getting the supervision they need. So I know that you've got a training coming up mm-hmm. in March, is it right? Yeah, to March, yes. So tell me about that. Let's, let's do a shameless plug for your for shameless, your- <laughs> shameless
1: plug. Uh, this is, this is the supervision, legal and ethical issues in private practice. This covers basic employment law for very, very small businesses of people looking to bring on just a couple of employees. We look at the minimum wage. We look at the very specific California laws that happen, uh, providing sick pay to your employees, the employees way that fee splits might work, as well as some of the issues that come up as far as how pre-licensees are allowed to advertise and what the licensing boards are looking at for your responsibilities as the supervisor. So it's six hours. It covers the supervision CEUs required by the Board of Behavioral Sciences. It covers the law and ethics CEUs that are required. So we'll put a link in the show notes.
0: Yes. And and I have been to this training and Kurt does a great job. So I, I really encourage if you're in California in the LA area and you're looking at becoming a clinical supervisor in private practice, don't miss this training. It is great. And if you're not considering clinical supervision and you still are looking for law and ethics CEs, as you've heard, Kurt and I are doing the brand called you and it's the law and ethics of personal branding. And so that will be in May. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And as you know, We have our amazing conference in October, the Therapy Reimagine Conference, where we'll be talking about the business and the profession of psychotherapy. And we have some great speakers and more information on our website. You can find us at mtsgpodcast.com on our social media platforms. And since I'm closing out, I'll say for Kurt Wilhelm and myself, have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thrizer. They are passionate about making out of network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists. And receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.
0: Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.